Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, I'd like to talk about science and pseudoscience. I'm a parapsychologist. I work in a field which is often called a pseudoscientific field, and naturally, I strongly disagree. People say it's pseudoscientific because we are endeavoring to study something that doesn't exist. And their reasons for saying it doesn't exist is usually that it's incompatible with what they believe to be a, a well-established rationalistic world view. Uh, my attitude is simply that science is based first and foremost on empirical observations. Theories have to follow from the observed facts. Now, my hero, William James, had a lot to say about this more than a hundred years ago. Uh, he said, when it comes to disputes between the mystics and the scientifics, the mystics usually have the better of the argument when it comes to the facts, but the scientifics have the better of the argument when it comes to the theories. Isn't that interesting? Now, Throughout history, there has been an effort to describe mysterious phenomena in terms of what are the leading edge theories in science. So today, for example, you get a lot of people talking about uh, consciousness and parapsychology in terms of quantum mechanics or in terms of uh, string theory and hyperspace, really cutting-edge ideas that very well uh, will have something to contribute. But it's interesting to see how this process has been going on for hundreds of years. For example, in the 18th century, when Franz Anton Mesmer began working with what we now call hypnosis, he used the term animal magnetism to describe what was going on. And the reason is because in his era, magnetism was on the cutting edge of science. And animal magnetism sounded like a really good term uh, that was likely going to work out. Well, I think it's fair to say at this point in time, there, there may be a few advocates for the idea of animal magnetism, and we have a lot to learn about biofields, of course. But basically, Mesmer's theory uh, was not correct. In an even earlier era, it was believed that the universe itself was a uh, composed of spheres. And so the people talked about the music of the spheres. That is, each of the planets was associated with a sphere, almost like a glass sphere revolving around the earth. And that uh, if you went out into the universe, you, you were entering into the realm of these planetary spheres. And so, when people began having visionary experiences back then, let us say anywhere from the Middle Ages into the Renaissance, well, it was called astral projection because they were projecting into the astral realm of the spheres of the planets. The planets were then thought of almost as stars at the time. It wasn't completely understood that they revolved around the sun. Another example of what we could today call, uh, well, I, I'm going to 
refrain from calling it pseudoscience and I'll tell you why in a minute, but I have another example for you. In the 19th century, when the theosophical movement became very important and powerful in terms of people looking at these sort of cutting-edge uh, aspects of consciousness, the, one of the leading scientific theories was known as the ether. It was thought that radio waves propagated through the ether. It wasn't believed they could propagate right through a vacuum, which is uh, considered to be the case today. So, the theosophists talked about etheric energy and the etheric body, and that language is still used, even though in our scientific discourse we no longer refer to the ether as a valid scientific theory. Although, once again, there are some frontier scientists who believe that all of these old ideas should be explored once again. Now, although the theoretical terms astral projection, animal magnetism, the etheric body, and for all we know, quantum consciousness may really not be accurate uh, theoretical descriptions of what's going on. I want to also share with you another idea that I, I have brought up before from William James and the notion of pragmatism, and that is if it works, use it. Uh, in the psychic field, there are people who have a need for a solid intellectual explanation. I, I happen to be the kind of person myself. I'm comfortable swimming and tolerating ambiguity. I can live with not knowing and just say, we don't know yet. But some people want to have an explanation. It makes it easier for them to feel comfortable and to communicate with other people. And you know what? If they're gifted dowsers or gifted psychic practitioners and they say it's because they're working with etheric energy or they're working with the astral body or they're working with uh, biomagnetism or, or uh, any number of uh, other uh, theories that uh, are not scientifically grounded, but they are getting results in their regular practice it's very likely that that explanation is working for them and it's true for them. So, my attitude is, is to have uh, tolerance for that sort of thing. We still have so much to learn. In the most ancient times, it was thought that these kinds of powers, like the strength of Hercules, were bestowed upon humans by the gods themselves. And for all we know, we may yet come to a new understanding of what the ancients had referred to as the gods. I think that uh, you'll see quite a bit of uh, interesting work in the field of Jungian psychology uh, with regard to archetypes in, in that regard. We have hardly begun to probe what archetypes really are. And consider this for a moment. Uh, scientific research and human civilization, let's be generous and say it's been going on for over a thousand years, maybe two thousand years since the work of Euclid and Archimedes. Still, that's a very short time 
frame in, in the larger picture when you consider that uh, the earth itself is about 4 billion years old and that humans have been on the earth maybe over a hundred thousand years. Imagine what our scientific thinking will be like a thousand years from now. And let me leave you with that thought. Thank you for being with me.